good morning. It's good to be here. And uh, I want to I want to start by reading a quote from John Piper that that wasn't in my sermon. It's not in my sermon. It was kind of before my sermon, even before the welcome. And I just kind of had it up here because you know people who come up here are curious, like what's on the pastor's iPad? Oh. So I want to read it to you because it's really setting the f- framework, the stage for, for where we're going, the direction that we'll be, we'll be finding ourselves. So, quoting John Piper, the, the greatness of God's electing love, thus, election is both glorifying to God and it is also the ultimate expression of God's love. Therefore, If we do not have a proper understanding of election, we will not have a proper understanding of the way God loves us. Me editing. The way our Father loves us. Back to Piper. But if we understand and believe that God, me, our Father, unconditionally chose to save us, it will open us up to the overwhelming experience of being loved personally, with the unbreakable, electing love of God. End quote. John Piper. It's good to be here. Thankful to see you this Lord's Day. Nikki and I have uh, visited a number of churches. I think we're up to six churches now. It's good to be here. It's good to be with you. And we could honestly say there's, there's little... There's little parts that we, we like at different churches that we visited in the Penticton and surrounding area. We're like, oh, that kind of echoes City Chapel in that way. And oh, this kind of echoes City Chapel in that way. And, but none of it's together. None of it is like check, 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 check for us. So I don't know if some of you have been out there and, and you're visiting other churches, you know, throughout the existence of City Chapel. Do you find yourself, you know, doing a, a little checklist of, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh man, miss home, miss the family. Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to First Peter chapter one. If you have a pew Bible, we'll be on page 114. And Shep, just a shout out. Thank you for your gifts. Thank you for these beautiful little. What are these called? I don't know. Pulpit cards? I don't know. Series cards? I don't know. But I like them. I really like them. And so it's my joy this morning to journey with you as we, we launch into a new book, a new series, Sojourners in Exile. And many of you have shared with me how much you enjoy Peter's introductions to new books. <laughs> like, I just, I, I wouldn't be up here saying this if you guys hadn't expressed to me you know, oh, I guess, like, this is quote-unquote things I've heard. So Peter's not doing the introduction to First Peter because he preached last Sunday, right? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, oh, I really like Peter when he does introductions to books. And, and, and so much feedback that I'm a little bit intimidated, right? And you guys, like, you talk about what you like. Like, you, you like the overview. You like, you like the, the slides. I'm not a slide guy. I'm not going to come up here with a pointer and be like, hmm, hmm. Right? But you guys love it, and, and I think it's awesome. And I'm going to be honest with you, I kind of love it too. I, I enjoy it. Right? I enjoy watching Peter do those introductions into new books. 
And so I'm not wanting to disappoint you, and, and I hope you give me some grace. And I'm not, as you know, really a slideshow guy. But I really do enjoy the introductions. And, and I just want to also acknowledge that Pastor Peter, Elder Peter, where are you, Peter? What? Dude, you're supposed to be over there. Are you afraid of Eric? He's a good guy. His beard, man, it's intimidating. Okay. No, okay. Pastor Peter, why don't you come up here? And I just want to say that I'm thankful for the growth that, that not only I've experienced and witnessed, but others have communicated to me in your preaching. Um, it's encouraging. You, you can figure out what you're going to do. And, uh, so thank you, Peter, for giving us good introductions with your gifts and, and corks and, and even with the, you know, the laser pointers. I should probably just go sit down. We agreed on uh, like five minutes. All right, that's it. And then the rest of it's yours. Uh, <clears throat> but we're going to turn again to 1 Peter. We're going to read the passage. And, um, and then we're going to just go through a couple of things that it seems like I do well. <laughs> uh, so let's hear the reading of God's word. The first letter of Peter, um, verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the, the men that laid it down, that left their fingerprint here in your word. We thank you, Lord, that all scripture is inspired by you and is useful for our edification and for our growth in, in Christ Jesus. So we just uh, come to you this morning as we start this new book, uh, expressing our desire to learn more of you and to be humbled by the, the people that, that lived in that first century in the, in the early church and we also um, experienced a lot of kickback and suffering. And Lord, there's much to teach us today because that suffering has not uh, disappeared in our world. There's many places that it's, it's really tough to follow you. And we, we pray for our, our brothers and sisters who face uh, cruel persecution because they, they proclaim your name and have your, you as their Lord and Savior. We pray that you would strengthen them and comfort them and preserve them. So, Lord, open our hearts this morning and teach us from your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, I, my five minutes starts now. <laughs> So the first verse, it starts with Peter. 
Well, that's different. Um, an apostle of Jesus Christ. So we are treading on new ground here, definitely, treading on new ground. We have spent a lot of time with the apostle Paul and his letters, and right away we see a difference. Paul would often start his letters called by the will of God to be an apostle or some other explanation of his apostleship. Not here, though. Peter simply states it. He didn't have to explain his role as an apostle. This is Peter. Peter, who we read through all the Gospels. Peter, who we, we see walking with Christ, interacting, challenging him, being rebuked by Christ. Peter, who in the after Christ was crucified, was really the, the leader of the church. And in the first 12 um, books, uh, chapters of Acts, we see a lot about Peter. But after that, it kind of gets a little dim. But this is the, this is the man. This is the man who wrote this, this letter. Uh, he's the apostle. He's the one who walked and talked with Jesus and who was the first to confess Jesus. As Lord, as we read in Matthew 16, and Jesus was asking, What do people say? Who do people say that I am? And Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And Jesus continues, in verse 18, and I tell you, Peter, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, in the past, there's been a lot of, Peter has been, uh, in, in some ways, glorified a lot more than Paul in, 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 uh, in the in the church, Peter was one who um, was the subject of many paintings, even by Rembrandt. And I've got one to show you. Uh, it's a caricature. <laughs> you can't really see it very well on this screen, but uh, it's actually, if you see in his hand, he Rembrandt paints him. He's got a key, a big, a big key in his hand, and that's him. Is is representing that verse that you have the keys, you've given you the keys uh, to the gates of hell, or to, to the kingdom of heaven, sorry. Whatever <laughs> 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 you bind it, but he says whatever you, you loose it us should be loosed as well. So yeah, the, there's a lot of hype about Peter, a lot of paintings in the Roman Catholic Church in particular uh, still... Um, make a lot of Peter. And there was much to make of him. So anyway, there's no disputing his credentials. We will no doubt, as we go through the next six months, just about, in this, in this letter, learn more about Peter. We have to do a bit of searching, and we have to do a bit of research on that. I want to move to the next part of verse 1, where we find out who the letter was written to. And it was written to those who are the elect, exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Where is Bithynia, you say? Uh, well, got a map to show you that. So you can see on this map here, 
Um, these are the provinces here. Bithynia is right there, and the Pontus, Cappadocia, Galatia, Asia. And uh, we see Rome over here, which is where Peter is supposed to have written this book, this letter, sorry. And, of course, there's Jerusalem down here. And right in the middle is this area, which is now modern-day Turkey. Now, Paul planted a lot of churches in, in this area in, in his travels. And you can see places like Troas and Colossia and Iconium and Antioch. And, but it's all in the kind of the south area. The north area seems to be a place where Paul didn't do a lot of traveling. And, uh, but these, these people had been, had fled persecution. There's a, dis it, in, in, the, in my version here, it, it, dispersion is with a capital D. So like, it's a name of something. So a dispersion, as it, as it sounds like, as it says, is people being dispersed. People going from their, maybe their homes and their, their families, and going to different areas, and we know that, you know, that there was all through the first 60 years of the church, there was various forms of persecution, and uh, it wasn't going to get any better. And in, in AD 64, I believe it was AD 64, the, the, the great fire of Rome, and uh, Nero, then, who is widely believed to have actually set the fires, because he wanted to rebuild. But there was so much suffering and so much outcry that uh, he decided that, yeah, I'm going to blame the Christians. And it just added to the, to the fire that was already on their plate. Uh, but people who was obviously going to these areas, and Peter decided that I'm going to write and encourage them. And it was towards the end of his life here, and uh, in a time that we probably don't know a lot about. Anyway, there's another picture I want to show you. Um, I've shown this one before. It's not very clear, but uh, you can see this is the first century churches. There were known, known churches at the end of the first century. And you can see they're all in that south part. And, uh, and a lot of the people that were in, had been dispersed in this area, it obviously by the end of the first century had not yet been able to establish a church but as we see in the third century, that changed. So we see an explosion of God's goodness and God's faithfulness. And these people who were minister being ministered to here by Peter uh, eventually survived and planted new churches and saw things happen. So that's the end of my maps, Shane. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it'd be it'd be so awesome! I was just like, for some reason, a little kid was like, you know, Pastor Peter was doing really good, and that's his book. I think Pastor Shane should have let him keep going with his book. Oh, well, I'm a huge fanboy of Jesus and, and thankful for the gifts he's given the church in, in prophets and apostles. And that's why we have this, this letter, we have this book, 
Isn't that a good thing? Right? Like, we wouldn't be here together saying that there is an objective standard concerning what God desires of us as a people. And where do you learn how to love and obey God? Where do you learn how to love and obey God? In the Bible alone. Who wrote the Bible? Holy men who were taught by the Holy Spirit. If you're struggling, talk to Matt, one of the deacons. We can hook you up with some catechism questions. Isn't that important to know? Isn't that important to understand? So even though I'm a fanboy of Jesus, and like he's my whew, Jesus, I, I'm a fanboy of others, and I have favorites, and I think I'm allowed to say that. Even though once I get in glory, the other guys I'm going to you know, kind of talk about are going to come up and rub on me like, yeah, so Paul's your favorite, hey? <laughs> get him! I love how the Holy Spirit taught Paul. And I love the, the, the point of distinction that, that our Peter brought up concerning the letter of Peter and how Peter in the letter introduces himself. It's like, you know me. You know I'm an apostle. You, you, know, my, you know my good days. You know my bad days. You, you know when I was like, blah, 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 blah. Oops. Oh, yeah? Oops. You know me. There's history, there's a story. So I love Paul, and, and right now I'm just wrapping up John Piper's book, 30 Reasons Why I Love the Apostle Paul. So good, so good. And then my favorite is, is Moses. I love Moses. I, I love the Pentateuch. I spend a lot of time going over that. I know. Why do you do that, Shane? I just, I love it. I love the first five books. And then Isaiah. It's not just a soundbite. Happy birthday. I love Isaiah. I have a Noah, Isaiah, Kelvin, Fox. And then there's the other guys for me. And, and Peter, the Apostle Peter, he's in that group of the other guys. But I find myself at times, and you probably have found yourself at times, laughing at the Apostle Peter when, when I think of his journey with Jesus. He's funny. Hey, Jesus. You know, he said things that were kind of whacked, and, and, and most of the things and the actions they took were so heavily rooted in his doctrine, kind of concerning a, a kingdom now eschatology. Like, Jesus, you're here, and like, you can feed armies, you can heal the sick, you can resurrect the dead. I mean, they just, we've been praying, and they came and asked you, where's Jesus? And you're like, here I am. Like, everyone falls down. Peter's like, kingdom now, eschatology. Let's go, Jesus. Let's fight. Because our army is not going to starve. You're going to raise the dead. You're going to heal us. Like, let's take out the Roman Empire now. And that's not, that's not King Jesus' plan. But we saw on that screen, those little red dots, that's our king's plan. And, and that hasn't changed today. That, that hasn't changed. Holy Spirit, may you continue to establish gospel-focused churches throughout the nations. Amen? But when we come to the book of 1 Peter, he's older. 
And you find a, a wiser, less needing to be in that cage stage of the young Peter, right? I think his eschatology has changed, his doctrine has shifted a little bit in how he understands the Lord's kingdom and what the Lord is planning on doing. Like that's, that's why he, he fled from a, a child. When a little girl is like, hey, aren't you, like, isn't he your team? He's like, nah, don't we talk about, kid, right? He's a different man. You know, we have here, and I, and I agree with many others who say that when we come to this letter, it's a short manual of doctrine that's outlined regarding the teachings of basic discipleship. And Peter has this way of, of, of weaving together gospel life. And, and you think of how he began, how he journeyed, how he left his business as a fisherman. He was an entrepreneur. He left that. He gave it up. The sons of thunder, they move on. And, and he, he pursues Christ and he pursues ministry. And he unpacks in this letter all of his life experience on how to weave together gospel life and gospel doctrine. If Acts is the story of how the church, that mostly being focusing on the Hebrew church, got going and, and got started, and you kind of look at that place, it, it really is the first reformation that the book of Hebrews talks about, like this time of reformation, right? You're moving from animal blood sacrifice, ecclesiastical structure of the priesthood, the, Levi, the, the Levites, the Aaronic priesthood, to the whole system being superseded by the high priest, the sacrificial lamb, on the cross. And that's now the message. There's a whole bunch of guys that are out of jobs. There's a whole bunch of families that are struggling. And the book of Acts is about that journey of how that impacted families when sons come to fathers and they're like, Dad, I know you're going to do the sacrifices this, this Sabbath, but me and my family, me and my household, as for me, I'm going to cry out that we shall serve the Lord. And the father's like, You've just been exiled from the family. You've just been kicked out of covenant community. And that's what the book of Acts is. And, and, and this book is how we do it individually and then collectively as elect exiles. And, and, I, and I can push the boundary on that and say this book is how we do it and journey together as Gentile elect exiles. This is so awesome. I never put in maps. Bring that map up again. Bring up map number one. Bring up any map you want because you can kind of look at it. Where's my pointer? Kidding. You can, not about the maps, though. You, you, can, you can look at that and you can see that you know it started in Jerusalem. I will make you my, my, my witnesses from where? Jerusalem to where? Right, it keeps getting bigger. The circle keeps getting bigger and pushed out there and pushed out there. And you know how tempting it is for those who are being persecuted in Jerusalem when it first starts to just lock it down? But the persecution, the suffering, the trial is what is used to push it out. And Peter unpacks for us in his letter not just for us, but every, think about it, every 
disciple who has read this letter since Peter wrote it. He, he unpacks for them the way the church engages with the world and the culture that it finds itself in. As what? As a covenant community. As a covenant community. That's, I mean, that's I hope that we are here. I don't care whether you're members or non-members or whether you're checking out membership or whether you know, you're going to wander down there with the party with the pastors downstairs. going to rock the roof up here, the ceiling, the floor. That's not, that's not the important distinction. The important distinction is that either you are in covenant with Christ and you desire to be a covenant keeper or you are in covenant with Adam who is a covenant breaker. And this is talking about federal headship. Like either, cover, either Adam is still representing you as your head and you're, and you're lost and you're under the curse of sin and death. Or Christ as Paul, it's okay to mention Paul, right? We still like, you know, I know it's Peter time, but Paul's going to be with us. Or Paul identifies that Christ is the second Adam, the better Adam, and so what Paul in Romans, he's calling us to identify ourselves, not with the first Adam, but to identify with the second Adam. And this, this is simple, but deep, very deep, realistic doctrinal teaching about challenges and hardship. The cost of following Jesus in a difficult time in his days, and, and it's fair to say, in our days too. I've been in ministry for 20 plus years, like 21, 22, I don't know, 20 plus years, and can I let you know that in that 20 years, there's, there's a huge shift in our culture, just in that little bit of time, of someone saying, so what do you do for a living? I'm a pastor. To you know, your neighbor or, or, or someone on the street or the butcher or wherever you are. I'm a pastor. Oh, what church pastor? You know, the reverence for the position or, or the congregants saying like, you know, um, pastor, we, we revere you. We, we love you. We, we want to be with you. And then even in the, the culture of the community, even if they're saved or unsaved, you know, oh, you're a pastor. That must, you must be, you know, a man of integrity and, and good character and, and people trust you. And, and so I'm going to trust you. Do you think that's changed today? Do you think in 20 years that that has changed? It's changed, right? It, it has changed, and it's going to continue to change, and it's going to change for the worse before it ever changes, Lord willing, for the better. And it's my hope and prayer that you identify, that I, with you, identify the cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. That we would see their suffering, we would see their race, we'd see the things that they've accomplished, that they've had to go through, and we would identify with them, that we would identify that they are cheering with us, that they are a cloud of witnesses recorded in this book who were exiles, sojourners. And so now we find ourselves along with them who have spent time under Peter the Apostle, Peter the Elder, Peter the Pastor. And I'm referencing all of the same person here 
who wrote this letter, Peter. And we find this letter encouraging that you as moms and dads and, and, and teenagers and children would find yourself spending time reading First Peter, pressing into it over the next several months, trying to get everything that you can out of it, letting it do the work of equipping you and strengthening you, that you might be able to press forward, that you might be able to gain territory in your own personal life and sanctification, that you might find yourself being filled with boldness, because I don't care what age you are, from the youngest to the oldest who are here, if you identify Christ as your Savior, you've been called to be on mission in your kindergarten, in your elementary school, in your workplace, in your hobbies. Why? Because the Christ who we call upon is the one who first came and, and demonstrated and lived out mission for us and then called us to go and continue doing it in whatever culture, in whatever generation we find ourselves in. Do you believe that God the Father has preordained good works for you to do this week for His glory? And do you believe that they, they all look different? From a child to, to a mother, to a husband, to a friend, to a grandparent? Our life of obedience, we don't compare it to each other. We don't, we don't compare, you know, what it looks like for this person to run their race. When, you're, when your race right now may just be discipling babies, keeping babies alive, <laughs> right? Uh, trying to keep yourself alive, trying to keep yourself functional, we all find ourselves in different chapters of discipleship. But we're all called to be on this mission and to be a witness. Look at how he describes the disciples. The disciples who are in love with what the Father has done for them in Christ. And how they're instructed and in, Peter wants to instruct them how they're supposed to relate to the world. Verse 1, to those who are elect exiles. That word hit me hard in my first years in Christ. Elect. That's who we are in relationship to the world. Elect or non-elect. If you're, if you're visiting City Chapel um, this morning, you've, you've you've come in a very interesting portion of Scripture. There's some deep truths, there's some deep doctrinal truths in this portion of Scripture that can be challenging. This, this stuff is some of the stuff that, that, that Peter's like, you know, some of the things that Paul writes about are difficult to understand. Oh, good job, Peter. <laughs> you just put it all in like two verses. But Paul's difficult. But that's who we are in relation to the world. Elect exiles. And this is really a key that we find ourselves in in these two verses. If we, if we get the understanding of what the Holy Spirit is doing with the key words here, the, the wording that he's using is designed to connect the way Peter's first readers understood themselves. 
in comparison to God's ancient people, the Hebrews, the Israelites. Does Israel have a history of being elect exiles? This is very much Old Testament language. This is very an Old Testament concept, right? The Babylonian captivity, the things that happened to, to Israel, to Judah in history at different points in time. But what's interesting about Peter's letter is his use of that vocabulary as he draws our attention to elect exiles in the dispersion. Dispersion. You know, there's a... I tell, what does that mean? What does it look like? This is where we want, this is where we want to interject a story about Jonah. But I'm not going to for the sake of time. That he's writing to the group of churches compromised, compromised mostly of Gentiles. Not Hebrews. Just in back reference to Jonah I was talking about was my son, not Jonah and the whale, even though he kind of went through the same kind of thing as my son. But Okay, just a short point. Quick, really quick. Jonah was, was yapping at his mom and not obeying and da-da-da-da-da. And uh, I could hear that Nicky was upset from upstairs. Jonah comes down and, and it was much nicer. I was very pleasant. And I just, you know, in fatherly tenderness said to Jonah... Listen, that's my queen. She was here before you. She's going to be here. here. She's going to be here after you. So don't respect my queen. He went upstairs and started packing his bags. <laughs> and so Nikki comes along. You guys have heard some of you have heard this story, right? And, and Jonah is packing his bags, and uh, Nikki's. You know, he wants his toothbrush, and Nikki's in the bathroom. Like, what are you doing? He could have said, like, Dad just dispersed me. <laughs> Out of the family, like, like, I gotta go, mom. I heard Nikki, like, why did you say? Oh, sorry, Shane, are you down there, honey? Yeah, I am, love. Oh, could, could can you come up here and talk to me for a second? Yeah, sure. What did you say to Jonah? He's packing his bag and getting ready to move out. What? Okay, that's the end of the story. Okay, so there's more. <laughs> Oh, well, you have to bring up his four? Why couldn't they pretend he's 18? <sighs> but this is, this, is, this is what's happening here. And if you look a little bit farther down in verse 18, Peter says that they've been ransomed from the futile ways of their fathers, pagan fathers, sons and daughters rescued. They're, they're Gentiles. And this is kind of like Abram. Before he became Abraham, it's crazy when you think that Noah was alive and he saw ten generations. Right? It's crazy. First starting with the sons that were with him on the ark and then from there on, nine more generations. And so Abram was still there. His son, his son, or great, 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 great grandson, Abram, was still there when Noah was alive. And, and, and Noah sees what's happening to his his children's children. And Terah, Abram's father, is worshiping false gods. Like, how'd that happen? And, and so Abram is called out. He's, he's called out. He's removed from false worship. Futile ways. And so I feel pretty comfortable saying that this, this is speaking. It's a reference to paganism, to false worship. And Abram, when he was called out of pagan worship, 
He was saved from false worship that his father had led him into. In a culture, in a community. And so these elect outsiders, these Gentiles, this is what Peter is trying to get across. You are sons and daughters of Abraham. You have been grafted into the covenants of promise. Maybe yet better yet, the covenant of promises that was spoken to Abraham. So these elect outsiders, these Gentiles who, who are now experiencing an element of persecution are living and doing their thing. They were outsiders and, and by the grace of God and in the work of the gospel they became part of a covenant family. But in identifying with that covenant family, they also began to experience persecution against their Lord, their, their views, their gospel, their message. And so Paul likewise writes in Ephesians to the Gentile disciples that they were strangers to the covenants of promise, but not anymore. Not anymore. And these are important titles and terms that are building upon covenant language. And these churches felt and experienced more of a social exclusion, more of the family excluding them. You know what it's like to begin telling your pagan parents that you shouldn't be doing that and that Jesus is the Lord. And, and, and um, you begin sharing the gospel with pagans and they're f- very often their first response isn't, that sounds lovely. So I'm a sinner and a covenant breaker and, and God is going to pour out his wrath upon me if I don't accept his son Jesus who died on the cross. Yes, Father, get out. This is, this is the tension point. And, and you know what? I think that all of us should have stories in our families if we are faithful to keep a gospel standard, to try and be true to the biblical text when it comes to counseling our loved ones and our friends, that there's stories of trial, social trial, relationships that get broken, friendships that end. Because that is what these elect exiles are experiencing. They're not in the place where the heaviness of persecution like in Jerusalem was coming upon them yet. It's down the road, but it's not there yet. Can I encourage you with something that I think is very real? That these days may be upon us now too. And that it's going to build into our culture and become stronger in our culture. And it's going to be difficult to find yourself in a place where you want to be a biblical individual, a God-fearing man or woman, knowing how with boldness and clarity and courage to, to live out and proclaim the gospel. That it's going to become harder before it's ever going to get easier. And others are yelling about love for Jesus and at the same time, clearly hating his commandments. Sometimes I hear Christians talk, and I see what Christians do, and in my mind, I'm like, 
Don't they hear Jesus' voice saying to them, why do you say you love me and not obey my commandments? Uh, and it's confusing. And it's going to be confusing for anyone under 12 years old. It's going to be it's confusing enough for anyone above 12 years old, isn't it? And then hearing them tell you over and over again that you're on the wrong side of history. But can we find encouragement in this verse? Can we find a position that says to us and speaks to our spirits that it's building the framework that it would remind us that we are on the right side of the cross? And that we don't come to that position with arrogance or, or pride or puffed up or like a peacock, but when those who see us living our, our Christian life, applying the gospel to ourselves and others, when they come along and they finally, as, as Peter will later instruct, you know, when they come and they ask you, why, what is the hope that lies within you? What's this about? And you respond to them with gentleness, meekness. You humbly respond to them. Respecting them about who your Savior is. I know some of you are going to have to put away your signs that says God hates faggots. But we as elders would encourage you to do that. There's a certain group that loves that demographic. They think that's ministry. I think it's of the, I think it's of the enemy. I think it's of the devil. No. Because these can get sound, but I'm not saying that God loves homosexuality or homosexual activity or, or, or that side of the fence. I'm not, that's not where I'm going. I'm saying let's start calling out our own personal sexual sin first and worrying about the household of God and our, our household and, and where we are before we start you know, declaring all the sexual sins of others. Right? I was talking with a friend today and, and uh, there's just so many things that, that we got to get out of our eye before we start pointing out the things that are, that are in our our brother's eye. And so with Christ in you, you find yourself a sojourner, a pilgrim, an alien. It's funny when the kids' heads go like, an alien? They're like... This is not our home. This is where we live. I want to encourage you, don't, don't put roots down too deep. Right? You're in a minority. Elect exiles. You're outsiders. I want to encourage you that we need to encourage each other to get used to it. One of the things that was amazing when I went to the Acts 29 conference in Europe was the whole mindset and and the picture that the church is gaining ground in Muslim communities. It's gaining ground. There's a reboot. There's something effective that the church is effective. And and guess what? They're not they're not getting a tax deduction for tithing. They're not they're not getting all the benefits and and, and we have way more things that they're in Muslim territory and they're gaining ground because the persecution is causing them to do the gospel and covenant community in such simplicity that's exploding. See, we have the benefit of a, a cultural history in North America that gives us creature comforts. But if those get removed, and this becomes hate literature, 
and we find ourselves out there without any of the benefits of being a Christian, and uh, someone's like, so what do you do for a living? I'm like, how many of you know what that is? Hands up, how many of you know what that is? How many of you want to know what that is? Thank you. The rest of you, go outside. We'll call you in for potluck. When the persecution is such, and you don't know whether someone's a brother or a sister, you know what you see on the back of cars, a little Jesus fish? What I just did was the first half of the fish. That was where it comes from. You would do that, kind of like, not as dramatic, right? But in the sand, in the dirt, you'd just kind of be talking to a guy, and you would go like this, and, you know, kind of walk away, and he would finish the other part of the fish. So folklore tells us. And then you'd, he's saying to you, I know Joshua. I know the Messiah. I know you're Jesus. He's like, we're going to be praying tonight. Over there. I'll be there. Sometimes I just want those days. Sometimes there's a part of me that says, Lord, just bring down the fires. Bring down persecutions. Just like purge, purge. Let us be so dependent upon you and in this world of mental health and mental illness and all the things that we, we have going on and all the confusion, Lord. We'd be faithful if we're just dependent upon a secret society of brothers and sisters looking for each other, dispersing income and take, caring for one another. Like that's what, this, that's what this book is about. That's what this letter is about. Peter's saying to them, you're Gentile and you're elect exiles. And the persecution isn't there yet, but, but it's coming. It's coming. But even with all that, Peter doesn't tell them or us to vacate the culture. That's a strategy that grows in our Christian bubble. We've done that well throughout church history. When suffering begins to loom over us, it begins to gather. We see the storm clouds on the horizon. We, we, we flee the culture. And we make, we make bubbles. And we desire to create separate institutions and, and build subcultures. We begin to want to strengthen ourselves in such a way that you know, unbelievers would never know that we are Christians. And only engaging when you absolutely have to. And just kind of just be in that place where you're just going to, what's happening out there, I'm just going to leave them to their mess. The, the lost, the world, I'm just going to leave them to their mess. And, and we need to weather the storm. But Peter, he doesn't tell them to flee the culture. He doesn't tell them to back off. But now here's the tension. Here's the razor's edge. Here's flipping the coin. He doesn't tell them to flood into the culture. He doesn't tell them to run in there and compromise everything, to just go with the flow, to just blend right in. You know, I was, I was driving, and there was a van. It was like a hippie van. And you, have you seen those vans that have, like, not 
the best graffiti, but they're kind of like the Astro Vans, and they have pretty good graffiti on them, and there's different things, and most of them have like a, you know, want to be like a 70s love bug or something. Have you seen those? Okay, so one was driving past me, and, okay, if I'm honest, I was driving past it, and I slowed down because it had something on the back doors. If you don't sin, Jesus wouldn't have a reason to die. Don't nod your heads too quick. Because when I read that, and I passed it, I'm thinking to myself, if you don't sin, Jesus wouldn't have a reason to die. So jump in my van, have some of this, and let's give Jesus a reason for dying. Like, the, ba- the van's behind me now, and I'm like, that's what that message is actually, I think, saying. Right? It's actually promoting lasciviousness. It's actually promoting go. What, 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 what Paul addresses, you know, should sin, should sin abound in order that grace might abound? God forbid. Right? So we don't go running into the culture. But Peter has written this book to provide wisdom and resources to walk in Christ's likeness and faithfulness with generous, sacrificial lives on display while we're on the mission. And if needed, which probably is going to come, because Paul you know, Paul said it's only been appointed to you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but also to suffer for his namesake. So when the suffering comes, and maybe right now it's just you know relational suffering and emotional suffering and, and work suffering and, and, and those types of things in our culture, but when the suffering comes... May we not be found compromising or backing off or hitting the brakes and just continue on mission together for the benefit of the lost and for the glory of our Savior. Verse 2. <laughs> Sometimes when I'm doing the sermon schedule, the series, I get to the point where I'm like, I should have made this two sermons but we're providing you lunch, so stick around. Verse 2, Peter reminds us of the resource of grace and truth that's being released in us. This, this strength that we need to call upon in such a way that we might fulfill what we've been elected to do. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ for the sprinkling with His blood. Does that sound like maybe there should be three sermons in there? Let's do it in five minutes. That is beautiful. You want, you want, this is just, this is in my, Shane, stick to your notes. But if you want to engage with non-Trinitarians, take them to this verse and just blow them up with the Trinity at work concerning redemption, the covenant of redemption, right? They're like, you believe what? You believe what? You believe what? You're like, Jesus died for sinners, and I, I pray that you would turn to him in faith and repentance. But here we see the role, the duty of each person in the Godhead, the Father electing whom to save, the Son living and doing the Father's will in perfect obedience and pouring out his life, his blood, his source of existence for a chosen people. The Spirit, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit working, doing its part, calling them to Christ, drawing them to Christ, regenerating and changing them 
into the Son's likeness. The mission of the Godhead concerning redemption. That is our thrust. That is our get up and go. That is our catalyst. That is what empowers us to go and to live out this mission in strength. Why? Go. Go and make disciples. You elect exiles. Go and make disciples. And Jesus is saying, all power, all authority has been given to me. And I am with you until the end. So go. Make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and teaching them to obey all things that I have commanded you. Knowing that the power, the source of you going out there, like, here I go to make disciples. Hey, how you doing? My name's Shane. Uh, what do you think of Jesus? Jesus, oh man. Well, you know, I love him and, and uh, he's my king and I love my king and I love his book and, and those two things together cause me to, to love people better, to be more purposeful in this mission. So if you have any questions and you want to talk about you know, Jesus or the gospel or how, how dumb the church is, Give me a call. Here's my email. Here's my text. You just called the church dumb. Yeah, I'm part of the church and I'm dumb too. I'm dumb. Dummy, dumb, dumb. I'm dumb. I don't have everything figured out. But I'm sure happy and willing to journey with you and try to answer questions. And I want to let you know you're not going to become my project. There's a friendship that can develop here. and We go forward. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father that he has things he wants us to accomplish in the gospel. And when we think of that word foreknowledge, I want to get into it. I really do. But in the back of these, once again, you can connect the deacons or or talk to Max. I don't know the donation price of these things. This is the shorter catechism. In the back, there's these little tracks, and this one's on foreknowledge. Anyone who wants one, there's just a photocopy of the back of it. You can come get one after the service. But when you look at this word foreknowledge in this text, it doesn't mean just in simplicity to just leave it alone, knowledge about human decisions or or knowledge about actions or knowledge about will or events before it happens. It, It does entail that, but it's not just simply that. There's more to it. So what does it mean? God possesses that kind of knowledge. I want you to understand. For sure, he does. It's, it's totally part of it, but it's not the totality of it. What Peter is referring to here when he talks about us being elect according to the foreknowledge of the Father It's people that God foreknows. Not just choices. I want to get that. It's people that God foreknows. He he knows them. Before their existence, He foreknew them. Not just their actions, not just their choices that they would make. It means more than just knowing those details. But there's, you know, we can get theological arguments and break this down, and people land on different sides of the fences. And that's not what I'm here to debate. Because in simplicity, I just want to say that 
before you ever existed, before you, you were ever a twinkle in your mother's eye or your father's eye, you had a father who loved you and chose you. He did not simply anticipate that somehow you would stumble along and make the, the opportunity of the cross available for you and, and you would, you know, do-do-do-do, fall that direction and make some good choices. In him, you were so elected and then aligned and brought into his purposes, brought into his plan, brought into the things concerning redemption that would glorify him, not you, that would exalt him, not you, that would prove and work out his will, not your will. And it was all free in one regard of your decisions. But yet we make decisions. Now, could you imagine if he left us to ourselves, dead in our trespasses and sins, waiting for us to make a decision for him when Paul says that you are at war, enmity with God, you cannot submit to his law, nor do you even desire to do so. And you're just, you're just left in that state. But because of the great love with which he loved us, he chose us, and in his effectual time called us to himself. In his effectual time, on appointed day, in eternity past, looking into eternity present, going forward into eternity future. That's why our sins, our past, present, and future sins are dealt with at the cross because the love and the work that the Godhead and the covenant of redemption is doing is eternal. In the past, he eternally loved you. Why? I don't know. I look at you and I have a hard time loving some of you. And I know you have a hard time loving me. Right? So it's not in that place where we can be like, he loved me because, well, here's my list. Right? I I don't know. But I do know this, that something was happening in my spirit as a late teen and early 21-year-old. This weird thing where, you know, high school's good. I have Nikki. Nikki's good. Things are going good. And I would find myself in a fetal position after parties where it wasn't anything too crazy, reflecting on my sin when no one's preaching the gospel to me. And I have her here because she's still with me as my wife. She can witness to you where, where she's holding me and I'm a, I'm a big guy and I'm in the fetal position. She's holding me and I'm weeping saying, i got to change something. Something has to change. We should go to church or something. Next morning, off to my sin. Off to my favorite thing. I don't know how it happened for you. I don't know how it's happening for you. I don't know if it will happen for you. I don't know if it's authentic with you. It's not my place. My place is to say that it happens. That God rewires. That God saves. That God changes us. He regenerates us from the inside. And we begin to desire through the work of the Holy Spirit Holiness. See, that's the goal. Holiness. To be Christ-like. To want to pursue righteousness. To see that place where you die more and more to sin as you mature in Christ and live more and more unto righteousness. 
And that can be messy. That sanctification can be messy. But Peter says that we are elect in the sanctification of the Spirit. The sanctification of the Spirit is this place where it's the evidence of our seal, the work that is taking place. I was sealed from eternity past. And my wife was this you know, really nice Roman Catholic girl holding me, trying to comfort me. I don't know what she's thinking. Like, maybe I should take him to Mass. Maybe I should take him to the priest. I mean, I should you know, try and do something here. This, the work of the Spirit, the evidence is, is taking place. What gets you from hating God, loving, the, loving the, the fruit of sin, which is pleasurable for a season, but in the end leads to death, to desiring what the Father desires, desiring holiness, the Holy Spirit came, and, and as you heard the gospel, there's a work taking place. The Spirit is at work, generated within you, this, this saving faith. I'm making a distinction between saving faith and just faith. There's lots of Christians out there who say I'm a Christian, and they talk about their faith, and sometimes I would never tell them that they're not saved, but I step back and I'm like, something's off. Because there's faith, then there's saving faith. And that saving faith is what unites you to the work of Jesus. And that's Old Testament and New Testament language. The way the saints were saved in the New Testament is that they were united to the promise of what the Messiah would do when they looked forward to him as a sacrificial lamb on the cross. And the way that the New Testament, the way that we are saved is we look back to the surety, the trust that it happened. I'm skipping notes because of time. Sorry, Les. The good thing is most of it I've covered because I just start saying it. Which brings me to the point that ultimately, brothers and sisters, we can't do it in the flesh, can we? We need to be led by the Spirit. And that becomes our heart cry. There's a moment where you're just like, this book is amazing. God's holiness, his standards are amazing. But I, I, I'm undone. I, I cannot do this. And, and I see people in the flesh who say they're Christians and all types of things. Like Mormons are doing a fantastic job, kind of, aren't they? I'm just going to say, man. Like, Right? But there, there's a self-righteousness and there's things that you can do in the flesh, there's, there's behavioral modification, but at the end, it's not the righteousness of Christ. It's the righteousness of man. It's our filthy rag saying, I'm here. Does this qualify? What? Huh? Righteousness of Christ only. But I did these things in his name. I mean, I prophesied. I cast out demons. Depart from me. I never knew you. You worker of inequity. Like there, now we see clarification for known, for thing. he knows us, he loves us. I never knew you. Like, same kind of principles. Like, no, he, he knows you. He knows, there's nothing God doesn't know, but he doesn't know you like fill in the blank. Shane, do you know Wayne Gretzky? Yeah. Because you know I'm such a hockey guy. <laughs> really? 
Yeah. He passed the message on to him. Sure, what do you want me to say? It's easy to find his email, right? I can find his email. No way, Shane. Do you know him? Well, in what way? Like, do you know him personally? No, no, no. Does he, does he know you? No, no, pretty sure he doesn't know me. See, these are the play on words regarding what's happening here. But we are known, and the Holy Spirit is working, and we are being conformed into the likeness of Jesus. Some faster than others. Some are maturing slower. When at last we cross that threshold of death and enter into that, that washing presence of the Redeemer, that, that, final, that final act where we are completely sanctified. And, and now that word, we, 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 we move away and say, it's not no longer this, this journey of sanctification. It is now the delight of glorification. That's the end game. That's the goal. Redeemed by the blood. Why? For obedience to Jesus Christ with sprinkling with his blood. But I want to I press in something here. We, we do pursue obedience. We are being sanctified towards obedience because of the blood of Christ. But ultimately, it's the obedience and the blood that belong to Jesus that gets applied to us. It's his. It belongs to him. And it's imputed to us. And on the cross, our sin was imputed to him. The life of Christ, a life we never could live. Nevertheless, we, all of us, all of humanity, humanity collectively are called to live a life of perfect obedience to the holy demands of a living God. That's what we're called to do. And so here's the crazy thing. There's these, there's these categories, these three categories of human existence. Okay? The covenant keeper, the covenant breakers who desire to be covenant keepers, and the covenant breakers who don't give a rip and are just happy going and doing their own thing and neglecting the covenant altogether. How many of us have or are in the category of covenant keeper? How many How many? How many people or how many persons have ever lived out that faithfully? One, Jesus. He's the covenant keeper. We are in the category of in covenant relationship with him, and we desire to be covenant keepers. How'd you do last week, guys? I know he looks sad. But that's the joy of it, is that we have a high priest. We have the one who intercedes on our behalf, who covers us, and we are identified, not in this mess, but in his covenant faithfulness. And that's where we rest. And isn't that the good news? Isn't that the thing that we delight in and should empower us for the mission as elect exiles? Your guilt, your sin, taken away by only one means, the precious blood of Christ. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling by the blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to make it. Those of us who truly love Christ and rest in Him, we're going to make it. We're going to keep putting one foot in front of the other. 
when the load seems too heavy, when the hill seems too steep, when the pressure of the world is coming in and, and, and it feels like it's going to compromise you, it's bearing down too heavy and too hard on you, when your flesh is yelling at you to stop walking in the Spirit, just, just go and, and do whatever you want, I want to encourage you that if you are in Christ, if you are identified with who Peter is addressing here, I can give you the assurance that he who began a good and faithful work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of the Lord Jesus Christ. My friends, have assurance that Jesus, not us, but we're in the journey and we pursue holiness, but Jesus, not us, is the one who will be found faithful completing the work that he started in us. There's... Not one single disciple having been removed from death into life, brought from darkness into light, who being found in the beginning with saving faith in this life throughout all of history has not finished well and is in the presence of their Savior. It's not one who hasn't made it. The Spirit will make you holy. The Spirit will make you like Jesus Christ on that great day when you are completely washed and you're a spotless bride. Can you just imagine how glorious I'm going to look in a wedding dress? Sometimes I wish there's different metaphors that were used, but you know what? I want, I want a white, beautiful dress, a robe, whatever, but I want to be identified with the bride of Christ who has been washed and cleansed and all of the sin and all the stress of relationships and how we get on each other's nerves and how we break things and we, we fumble around and, and we're, we're almost in that place where it's like, Jesus, do you still love us? Then the Spirit comes in the most intimate way and bears witness with your spirit that you are sons and daughters of the living God. And you get to cry out, Papa, Abba. Daddy, you know me, you know us, and you've promised that there's going to be a wedding. And I'm going to encourage you, it's going to be hard, and yes, there's going to be many stumbles along the way, but he will never release his grip on you. And so you can and will persevere. You will do the things that he has ordained for you to do. You will have the victories that he will delight in. You will have the sin that will mystify you, blow you away. You won't be able to understand like how he will still take it and use it for his glory when the enemy wants to use it to destroy you and harm you. You stand now and forever before the Father righteous, justified, and nothing can change it. Nothing can change your right standing before the Father who has loved you and put all of this into motion in order that he might delight in us as faithful sons and daughters. And when the faithful servant looks towards us and says, well done, good and faithful servants, <laughs> no, 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 no. Jesus, to you, well done, good and faithful servant. These crowns, whatever I got, whatever it hasn't lit up on smoke and it's still precious metal and stuff, yours. Amen. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we come before you thankful 
for the words in this letter, and I pray, Lord, even as I'm long-winded, that you would remove what's not of you, that you would redeem the time, but you would wire, that you would weld to us the things that are of you in our spirits as we go forward this week, that you might be glorified, that we might be faithful, and that the gospel might be proclaimed. It's in your name we ask these things, Jesus. Amen.